It's great to be back with you this evening. Uh, last week we were gone on a spring break trip, and I really appreciate Taylor Duke, our new youth pastor, giving the message last week. I think he did a great job. I was able to watch that on the road. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure he'd appreciate that in, that encouragement. He continued our series that we've been in now for the last couple of weeks called It's Personal. And what we've been doing in this series, we've been digging into God's Word, and we have been examining um, a number of, of, of instances that somebody came into contact with Jesus, and that interaction with Jesus absolutely changed their lives. I mean, like, like before that, they were heading down this path, and then afterwards, after they spent time with Jesus, they were heading down a completely different road. It completely changed everything. There was that moment where it became very personal. We've looked at, at Jairus on week one where he came to Jesus and, and his daughter was dying and he says, you've got to help me. And Jesus goes and he heals his daughter. And if you remember along the way, there was a woman who, who reached through the crowd and touched Jesus and she was healed and, and hopefully this is coming back to you. And, 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 and these encounters absolutely changed their lives. We looked at Zacchaeus. He ran ahead. He wanted to see Jesus, so he climbed a sycamore tree. And, and I regret now, two weeks ago, not singing the song with you. And I thought, you know, we'll find out how many people grew up in church. We're going to sing the Zacchaeus song. But we've moved on. I told my wife after church that, that I said, you know, we should have sing the Zacchaeus song. I didn't think about it. But, oh, well, next time we come to it, we're singing the Zacchaeus song. But he had this encounter with Jesus, and it absolutely changed his life when Jesus said to him that day, Zacchaeus, you come down here because I'm going to your house today. And he was a changed man. Uh, Taylor walked us through last week a couple of Jesus' disciples who, who got a little big for their britches. You remember? They said, hey, we want to be at a mother's request on the right and left-hand side of you when we sit on our thrones. And Jesus said, you do not know what you're asking me. And Jesus had to give them a little lesson that we were put on this earth not to be served, but what? To serve. No doubt a moment they looked back and said that, that changed a lot of things. We have also been looking at stories right here in our church family. Not just from scripture, but stories of life change in our family. We saw Christine's story and, and her house. I don't know if you've seen pictures, but her house for Habitat, it's going right up. It's amazing how fast that house is being built. Thank you all those that are participating in that. We heard from Terry Lynn Cruiser and Brandon Smith. And, and in fact, if you missed any of those stories, if you're like, hey, I'm not familiar with that, you can go to our Facebook page. All of those testimony videos are there. And uh, you don't even have to have a Facebook account. It's an open account. Just go to our Facebook page and you can watch those. And if you haven't done so, I would encourage you to do so. They're powerful stories of when it got personal with these families in our church. Before we're done here tonight, we're going to hear another story from someone in our church about it becoming very personal and life changed. I've said this throughout this series, that if you are a Christian, then there is at least one point that you can look back and you can say, that's when it got real. That's when it got personal. And I hope that that, that that has jogged your memory and you have had opportunity to tell people your story as, as we've been talking about it. That's when it got real. And you know you come across that moment when you tell somebody and in that story, you, these words come out of your mouth. That's when I knew God loved me. If you've ever said that, then that's your moment. Hey, that's when I knew that my sins were forgiven. That, that's that moment. That was the day that the Lord changed my life. If that has come out of your mouth, you're talking about that moment when it became personal. Or if you say some, to somebody and, and out of your mouth goes, you know, the day my life radically changed was the day when. That's that 
moment. I think every Christian has at least one of those moments. I think we experience multiple moments the longer we're a Christian when things become so real and our perspective becomes so clear of what God is doing. Now, what I want to explore a little bit tonight is is this question. We've been exploring, you know, those moments when it gets personal. But do you think that there's ever a time in someone's life when it is too late for it to get personal? Too late for it to get real. Like, maybe you've thought this before or you know somebody who has said something like this. It's like, hey, I missed my window of opportunity for God to do anything in my life. I don't think God can use me anymore. I think I missed my chance and I'm just out of luck. And, you know, a question I've been thinking about as the Lord, I think, has kind of led me to our text tonight is, is, is anybody in here wrestling? Or do you know somebody who's wrestling with this idea that, you know what, it's too late for me? And so my question for us I wanted to wrestle with, can somebody get to the point in their life where it's too late for it to get personal with them and God? Jeff Stratton is a pastor from Indiana, and a few years ago he was called to visit a 93-year-old man who had just found out that he had terminal cancer and did not have very long to live. Uh, this man's name, this 93-year-old man's name was Adolph Allen. And by his own admission, Adolph had been a, a hard-living, hard-drinking union iron worker for most of his life. And if Adolph sat there in his home contemplating the reality that his life was coming to an end, he wondered that very question. Is it too late for somebody like me? Pastor Jeff, he went to see Adolph, and it wasn't, they weren't even two minutes into their conversation when, when Adolph looked at Pastor Jeff and he asked this question. He said, Pastor, is it fair for someone to live their whole life one way and then at the end of their life ask God to take them to heaven? That's what he wanted to know. And I think when we are confronted with our mortality, we ask very real questions like this, especially if we've lived a life like Adolph has lived. He wanted to know, is it a fair thing to even ask God to take somebody like him to heaven? And after thinking about it for a moment, Pastor Jeff said, no, Adolph, it's not fair. But luckily for you and me, God's not fair. And with that thought, Pastor Jeff began to tell Adolph about what it means to be saved. And all that Jesus had done for him and about a life that he had lived where he only lived for himself but Jesus came to fix all of that and here you have this 93 year old man who for the very first time in his life he bows his head and he asks the Lord to forgive him of his sins and he accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord four weeks later Pastor Jeff is preaching Adolph's funeral and as he talked about Adolf's life, Pastor Jeff made this comparison. He said, Adolf's life is a lot like a football game. He said, football games sometimes come down to the final play. A team might be behind, and they might have been outplayed for the entire game. But then, right at the very end, the quarterback may fade back and throw the ball as far as he can as a Hail Mary pass into the end zone as the time expires. 
The ball might be batted around a little bit, but if an offensive player comes down with the ball and he catches it, it's a touchdown, the game is over, and they win. Pastor Jeff said this at Adolf's funeral. That's what I think happened with Adolf. The devil was in the lead for most of his life. But the final score was Jesus won and the devil zero. I think Adolf's story has a lot in common with the individual that we're going to look at in our text today. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 23. That's where we're going to be today, Luke chapter 23. And I hope you brought your Bible, and I hope you get in the habit of bringing your Bible. Just as a reminder, as a resource for you, if you have a smart device, an iPad or whatever, you can sync up with our church's Wi-Fi, and uh, you can follow along at our newlifenwa.info. In fact, I was just looking at it right before I walked up here. You can scroll through the different cards in here. It works just like an app. And you can go to a card that says Today's Message. And you can click on that. I don't know if you can see it, but you can click on that. And it will take you to um, basically a page that was built for you to follow along with this message. If you'd like, if you're somebody likes to do that, there's places where you can take notes. You can email those notes to yourself. All the scriptures that I'll be using today are in that pa- on that page. And uh, it's just a great resource for those of you that like that kind of thing. We just want to help put the Word of God in your hand. We want to put a tool in your hand that will help you take more away from what we're doing. It should serve as a great resource for you as you go into your life group this week and we study Luke chapter 23 even further. But as you turn to Luke chapter 23, and if you were to start reading, you'd probably ascertain very quickly that Jesus is just a few moments away from being nailed to the cross. That's where we pick up the story of Jesus. That's where we are. His life is about to come to an end. Now, with that said, I just want to point out that it is not an accident that we are in Luke chapter 23 on this weekend. Next weekend, I hope you all know this, is what? Easter weekend. Very good. We'll see how smart next, uh, tomorrow people is. You know, But tonight, you guys are good. Easter is next weekend. And so Christians from all around the world, millions of Christians, are going to come together and they're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this weekend, however, is commonly known as what? Palm Sunday. Well, it's Saturday, so Palm Saturday doesn't sound quite right. But Palm Weekend, all right? It's Palm Sunday. That's what tomorrow is. And what is significant about Palm Sunday? What's significant about it is Palm Sunday is the day, it's the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. So some 2,000 years ago, it was this weekend that Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem, and we know that 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 movement into Jerusalem in the Bible calls it the triumphal entry, and we call it Palm Sunday. Why? Because all of these people came out to see Jesus come into town, and they cut palm branches, and they laid them down in front of Jesus, and that was something they only did for like kings and royalty. It shows you how the people saw him on that first day of the last week of his life. Man, can you say that a crowd can be turned quickly? Because in that last week of Jesus' life, it went from triumphal entry to the cross. 
And in between, we see that Jesus, he preaches, he clears the temple, he drives out evildoers from the temple area, he has the Last Supper with his disciples, he gets betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver, he, become, he gets arrested at night. He, uh, one of my favorite moments in the last week of Jesus' life is when he's getting arrested and Peter tries to be big and brave and he pulls out his sword and we all know he's better with a fishing pole than a sword. And he swings at the soldier, and what's he do? Chops off his ear. And Jesus is like, hey, stop it. And he, if you can imagine the scene, he picks up his ear. This is, this is a guy's name is Malchus. He picks up his ear, and he puts it back on his head, and he's healed. Can you? I mean, why would, why would any soldier want to arrest Jesus after that? I do not know. But that happened during the last week. He gets carted off and put through what only can be described as a kangaroo court. At the end of that, he is beaten, he is flogged. I mean, he was flogged so severely, I mean, I mean, the path to death was set just by the flogging itself. And now we come to the crucifixion, and it is time for the cross. And that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 23, verse 26. Let's read it together. So they're on their way to crucify him, and as the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now being crucified, if you've ever looked into this, and we're, we're not going to look into all the gory details tonight, but if you ever spend time, it was an excruciating, excruciatingly painful way to die. One of the worst. But it was also perhaps the most humiliating way to die. I mean, it was painfully horrible, but it was humiliating at the same time. And part of the humiliation process was to make criminals carry their own execution device through the streets and out to the place where they're going to be executed. And people would come out and they would watch this and they would insult criminals and they would do all these things. This is what Jesus had to endure. They had to carry his cross, but he was beaten and flogged so severely he couldn't get all the way there. So the soldiers grabbed a guy out of the crowd. That's the way the scripture makes it appear. Grabbed a guy out of the crowd. His name was Simon of Cyrene. And they're like, you're going to carry his cross. Cyrene is a place in northern Africa. So Simon had traveled quite a distance to get to Jerusalem during this Passover season. And so it's not like Simon could have like, said, no, I'm not doing it. Because if you know anything about the Roman law at the time, that if a Roman soldier told you to do something, you have to do it. I mean, you, don't have, you, can, I mean, you can protest if you want, but you're probably going to find that your protest puts you on the wrong end of a whip. And so Simon does what he's supposed to do. He's like, okay, let me carry it. For Jesus, And as I think about the moment in my mind's eye, and I visualize this going down, I, I see Simon carrying Jesus' cross, and, and it takes me back to something that Jesus said a couple years earlier in one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. And we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus says this to the early followers. He says this, if somebody forces you to go one mile, you should go another mile. It's kind of where we get the phrase, go the extra mile for something. Do more than what's expected. Many people believe that Jesus was referencing this rule that the Romans had, that, that uh, you had to, to be forced to carry something or to walk. And the Roman soldiers were allowed to force somebody to walk one mile. 
And Jesus is like, you go two miles. This just kind of takes me back to, to this moment. Simon is maybe fulfilling in many ways some things that Jesus said long ago, and it was a testimony to those who watched, if not in the moment, at least to me later. Today's message is not about Simon of Cyrene, not at all. But I think the case could easily be made that the day that he was forced to carry Jesus' cross is the day that potentially Simon looked back on and said, now that's the day it got real. And we don't know for sure. But if he became a, a follower later, don't you think that the day he carried the Lord's cross would be the day he's like he got personal on that day? We can't be certain, but many people believe that Simon did become a follower after the resurrection and after the church got going. Now, the reason many people think that is because in Mark's account of the crucifixion, you know, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the same story. Some of them add more details than others, but they harmonize perfectly. In Mark's account of the crucifixion that he wrote years later, he says that Simon of Cyrene was pulled out of the crowd, and they said that this is the same Simon who was the father of Rufus and Alexander. You can read that in Mark chapter 15, verse 41. Now, Mark probably added that little detail because the church who would be reading this account of Jesus' crucifixion, they knew who Alexander was. They knew who Rufus was. And so it's like Mark saying, you know Simon, you know his boys, it's Rufus and Alexander. You know them, right? So it's, it's his dad. That's who got picked to carry Jesus' cross. Coincidence, huh? It's almost like there's some familiarity with it. We, if you were to keep reading in the New Testament, you'd come to Romans chapter 16, verse 13, and you would find that a Christian by the name of Rufus greeted the apostle Paul. It's very possible that perhaps this was the same Rufus who was the son of Cyrene. Many people believe it probably was. Some of this I'm sharing with you is speculation. We, there's no way of knowing for sure. But if it's true, and maybe it is true. I think that either way, it's a very good reminder to us today that God can still use difficult and unexpected scenarios, and I would say even humiliating scenarios, to bring people to faith in Christ. This would not be the first time, nor would it be the last time, that the Lord would use a hardship or a very difficult circumstance to get somebody's attention or to bring them closer to him or an awareness of his presence. I know right here in our church family, there are a number of people who could say that it was a tragedy or it was a very difficult situation in my life that ended up being the catalyst for life change. And they wouldn't trade that for anything. Maybe that's the same for Simon of Cyrene. The day he was forced to carry Jesus' cross... The day he might look back, the day that might have influenced his two sons to follow Jesus themselves and take up their own cross spiritually and follow him. Maybe that was the day he said, I knew that there truly was a God. Well, let's keep reading. We could say more. The sermon, again, is not about Simon. It's about somebody else. But it's hard to pass up details. Verse 27, it says this. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. 
So the story continues. Simon is carrying Jesus' cross. They're walking to the execution site. This is a large crowd of people. Luke, make sure that we know this is not a small crowd. This is not something that went unnoticed in the city that day. This is a large crowd. And with them were a lot of the women. Now, in John's account, John will name the women. And in the name of the women, we know that one of them was Mary, Jesus' mother. Now, I don't know how Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, could have walked with Simon and Jesus and the crowd and bore witness to all of this. Could you watch your son go through this? But she did. Luke points out again that this was not a small crowd, a large crowd. Now let's jump down to verse 32. Here's what happens next. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, you'll notice that none of the gospel writers really spent time explaining just how horrific crucifixion was. They probably didn't think it was necessary, so they just simply left it, and they crucified him there. Every single person back in this day would understand what a crucifixion was. They didn't need it spelled out. They knew how horrific it was. So Luke focuses on other details. He says they came to a place called the skull, and and Jesus wasn't alone. There were two other criminals that were that were crucified there with him. Now, if you are reading the NIV, which is what I'm reading from, it says the skull. If you're reading from the King James Version, um, it's going to say Calvary. Maybe you've even heard of this place. It's called Golgotha. We're talking about the same place. So whether it's referenced in your Bible as the skull or Calvary or Golgotha, it's the same place. But different names come from different languages. So you have Latin, which is the official language of the Romans of the time, and it's called Calvary in their language. You have Aramaic, which is the official spoken language of Palestine, and it's called Golgotha. Then you have Greek, which was the universal language of the day, and that Greek word is krinion. And krinion, it sounds familiar enough to our English word, you probably figured it out, cranium, cranium, skull, so that's where we get the skull. It's the same place, whether you call it Calvary, Golgotha, or the skull, we're talking about the same place. And any visit to the Holy Land, no doubt, will include a stop at Calvary, Golgotha, the skull. It will include a trip to the garden tomb, which the, the skull and the place of the crucifixion and the garden tomb are very close together. In fact, I've got a picture, in case you've never seen the garden tomb, let me show you what it looks like. Here is a picture of the the garden tomb that you can go visit today. This is one of the places that many people today believe is the spot where Jesus' body was laid. And there is a good amount of evidence that does kind of point that this is probably the place. Now, if it's not the exact place, I mean, it's close to this place, but it is a tomb, it is close to Golgotha, and it it makes sense. The time is correct, and there's other things that that point to that as well. Now, a very short walk from the garden tomb, I would say not even a minute walk, you come to the place of the skull, the Calvary, Golgotha, whatever you want to call it, it's all the same. And there is evidence, strong evidence, that points to maybe this is the, the, the very place that Jesus was crucified. I'll show you a picture of it here in just a moment. 
But back in Jesus' day, Calvary was a very popular execution place. Now, the reason why many people get excited about this site being the site for Calvary is because if you look at it at a certain angle, it actually does resemble kind of a skull. Let me show you a picture. It's the next slide. Now, I don't know how well you can see it, but can you see it? In the kind of middle screen, you've got two eyes, you've got a nose, and... Um, have you, who's seen this in real life? Anybody visited? Did you kind of see it? Did it look like a skull? And so people get excited about it. It's like, I can see the skull. And if you go back to, to pictures from like 100 years ago, it is even more pronounced because, you know, there's less stuff around it. And, and, and so many people look at it and go, that is the place. Um, it, it appears that maybe it is. Now, here's the picture again. I'm going to zoom out just a little bit so you can get some perspective and and it's kind of hard to see because it's blown up so big across the screens. But the circle part, you can kind of see the eyes and the nose. And, and this area was, like I said, a very popular execution site back in Jesus' day. This is outside of the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem today. Back in Jesus' day, this would have been a very busy thoroughfare. They've excavated down a little bit deeper, as I understand it, so... It's hard to see from this picture, but, but the, the floor or the road was a little higher. And so the, the tour guide that we were with was explaining to us that Jesus and the criminals would have probably been crucified just a foot or two above the ground in front of this very popular, well-known execution place outside of the city walls at a place known as the Skull. And, and, and it was a well-traveled road. And so many people would be coming and going, and they would do it there because it was a warning to anybody else, don't step out of line. Don't break the law, or this will happen to you. Now, I, I tell you that because I find it really interesting. I thought maybe you would find it interesting as well. But with anything, there are those that would adamantly deny that this is the actual place um, of Jesus' crucifixion, and there are others that would give their very lives to prove, no, this is the actual place. But all I can tell you is this. For me, visiting the garden tomb and visiting the place of the skull was one of the most moving experiences of my life. For me, it's one of those moments that I look back on, and I could say it got even more personal for me on that day as I contemplated all that Jesus had done for me. Now let's read what happens next. Verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with other criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, Jesus was crucified about 9 o'clock in the morning, and he hung there till about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The Bible tells us that from noon to 3, there was darkness that covered over the land. 
And in these few short verses that we have read together, we won't unpack them very uh, significantly, but I just want to tell you, in these few verses, we have a number of prophecies that, uh, that were fulfilled in this very short time frame. And if you're using the, uh, the app, the .info page, I've got those pictures and I've got all the prophecies there listed for you. But let me just share with them with you real quickly. The, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that the Messiah, this is a prophecy, that he would be among the transgressors. In fact, his death would become among criminals, and he certainly was that. Psalm 22 talks about, very specifically, hundreds and hundreds of years before it actually happened, that the Messiah's clothes would be cast off by, by lots, that they would gamble for his clothing. And the Bible clearly says that's just what happened. Psalm 22, verse 7, another prophecy talks about how people would be mocking the Messiah. They would be hurling insults at him. That definitely happened. Psalm 69, verse 21, very specifically states, hundreds of years before it happens, that he would be offered wine vinegar to drink. Very specific. We know that Jesus was crucified, which means his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 16 through 17, a prophecy about the Messiah. It says, dogs surround me on a pack of, of villains. In, a pack of villains circle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are displayed. People stare and they gloat over me. This isn't a sermon about fulfilled prophecy, but wow. Wow. Finally, we come to verse 39, and we're introduced to the man who had the life-changing personal moment with Jesus. All three gospel writers write about Jesus' death. All four of them write about Jesus' death, but only Luke gives us the detail about this guy. It says in verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished just, justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Do you see the back and forth that's happening here? Jesus in the middle and, and two criminals on either side. They're all talking. One is insulting and one is not. One's defending. And then the one who was defending Jesus said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so we come back to our original question tonight. Do you think there is ever a time in someone's life when it's too late for them to get personal with the Lord? It's the same question that Adolph Allen, at age 93, when he was staring death in the eye, he asked Pastor Eric, is it fair for someone to live their whole life one way, and then at the end of their life, ask God to take them to heaven. It is the same question that we are confronted with in Luke chapter 23, when the thief on the cross next to Jesus makes this deathbed request, and he said, please, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, as I look at this and I stare at Calvary and I see the picture of Jesus and the criminals that were crucified with him, 
I see people today. I see people faced with the very same decisions and the very same questions. Now think about these two criminals. Both of them had access to Jesus. Both of them could read Pilate's sign above Jesus' head. This is the king of the Jews. Both of them could hear the mocking. Both of them could hear and see what was going on. And both of them watched Jesus compassionately give his life for the sins of the world. But each of them had a completely different response to Jesus. So you have this one criminal who, who absolutely joined in with the insults that he heard from the crowd. And, and he heard what the religious leaders were saying and what the soldiers were saying. Hey, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And he joins the bandwagon of mockery of Jesus, and he jumps right on, which I find ironic since he is about to die. But then you have the other criminal who had a completely different idea. And I think that maybe he could have reasoned in his mind that if, if this Jesus was actually who he claimed to be, we don't know when this conversation happened exactly, at what hour on the cross, how long he was thinking this through over those six hours, but could this guy Jesus actually be who he claimed to be? Maybe this Christ actually does have a kingdom, and maybe he has saved others, and he could maybe meet my greatest need, which I think this other criminal was starting to realize his greatest need was salvation. Call it a deathbed confession or maybe a deathbed realization. But he comes to this conclusion, and the conclusion is this. Spiritually, I am not ready to die. That's what he's saying. I'm not ready. Spiritually, I'm not ready to go. I'm not ready to meet my maker. My, my heart is not where it needs to be. It's the same conclusion that we all come to eventually. And hopefully, it's long before our deathbed. But it's the same conclusion, it's the same question. Am I ready to die? Am I ready to meet my maker? That's, my friends, is when it gets personal. When you can answer that question confidently. It's at the very heart of those moments when we go, that's when it got real. That's when I knew. All of those things. It's a pivotal moment. Of that's when I knew. And I think that is what this criminal is going through. I think it took a lot of courage for this guy who was being crucified next to Jesus to absolutely defy the influence of the other criminal and to absolutely turn a deaf ear to all the mockery that was going on in Jesus' final moments. And I believe that his plea to Jesus to remember him after all this is over, please remember me. That was his way of confessing his faith in Jesus. Jesus accepts this criminal. He sees his faith. And he accepts him just like he accepted tax collectors. And just like he accepted sinful men and women. And the stuff they were caught up into. Just like he accepted every single person throughout history, including every one of us in this room today, 
And here we have, right at the end of Jesus' life, the epitome of what we've been talking about these last few weeks, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Even in his last moments today, I see you. I see where your heart is. And today you will be with me in paradise. You want my answer to our question? I hope you know. None of us, nor anyone else for that matter in the world, are all that different than the thief on the cross that day. And as long as there is air in your lungs, God can do a redemptive work in your life. Here's Hannah's story. Back in 2012, 2013, um, some casual drinking, just social, social drinking, over the course of about a year turned into um, just a maintaining of daily life. I was consuming so much alcohol that my body was, my, my kidneys and my liver were, were failing. Um, I was covered in bruises and I, I, was, I was dying. And eventually my husband had had enough. He didn't know what to do. My parents who had loved me unconditionally, they were at a loss and seeking some advice, it was suggested that I attend Decision Point. Um, our daughters at the time, our, our middle child at the time, who's now eight, she was three and our oldest was about 10 or 12. Um, I had never been away from the kids, but at that point I knew something drastic had to take place. And so looking back, I can see bits and pieces that God had intervened and really orchestrated to, I think, just get me to a point that I was willing to do whatever it took and that I was willing to face the outcome no matter how messy it was. Um, so I, was, I had the only single room on the entire ward of 25 girls that were there. These were women that had been in and out of prison, whose marriages had failed, who had lost custody of their children, and I had never been involved in anything like that before. I was very sheltered growing up. So that was a wake-up call, but I also had the private room that gave me seclusion, that gave me access to private reading, whether it be devotionals or Bible. And so, so over the course of about three weeks, it was apparent that I stood out from these women, that that, that was not the path that I wanted to take but I think the turning point came on a Thursday morning. I was having some quiet time. And I, I remember silently having a conversation that just said, God, I don't know what it looks like when I leave. I don't know if I have a home, if my husband leaves me, and if I lose my children. But I've made these choices and I can't take it back, but I can change the future. I can decide that the calling that you've placed on my life is bigger and greater than these struggles that I'm having right now. And I completely surrender to that. If, if I had a, a view of heaven, it would have been at that moment, God saying, I can use that heart. I can make a difference with that spirit. What I didn't know was that that same Thursday afternoon, my husband went to my parents' house in Springdale and said, I wanna let you guys know that at visitation this weekend, I'm gonna tell Hannah that I want a divorce. He said, I can't do this and I can't subject our children to this anymore. So they didn't really know how to cope. There was no readily available access to phones. There was no communication. They just knew that over the course of the weekend that would happen. 
he said that whenever he left their house and he went back to our home in Tawnytown, the girls were not there. And it was just like he walked in and he put some music on and the Holy Spirit and God's presence was so overwhelming, he couldn't get up. And he said he had spent hours on the floor crying out to God, asking for advice and asking for help. And he said the thing he just kept hearing was, I'm not done with your family. Your marriage is not over and your daughters will not grow up in a broken home. Up to that point, it was me. It was me attending meetings. It was me trying to do this. It was me trying to fix this. But it wasn't until that day that I finally had said, when I leave, it might be horrible, but it's okay. That God truly revealed himself to me. We had our oldest child when I was in high school, and I remember having these thoughts like, why are people still loving me? Why are they still giving to me? And my mom saying, Hannah, his grace and his mercy is more than we could ever ask or deserve. He looks for opportunities to bless us. And I knew that those things were true, but it wasn't until that moment that he really transformed our family. And it's not been easy. John came to see me that weekend with a very long letter that he said, and all I could do was sit and sob. He said, if you'll take my hand, I will take yours and we will walk this journey together. I had to know and understand that there were bridges that had to be repaired and that it would take a long time. Had those moments not happened though, um, we wouldn't be coming up on 12 years married and I wouldn't have been healthy enough to carry our son. There were other circumstances with our son's birth that were well beyond what we ever could have imagined because it truly was a, a miraculous um, birth with God. I mean, he, he, inter he intervened and ordained him to be part of our family. Um, he's now almost three and I've almost got five years sobriety. And it, I look forward to, as silly as it might sound, seeing our children grow up, seeing our daughters thrive, knowing that with all of my heart, I'm everything that I can possibly provide to them in a mom, that I'm uh, that I'm healthy, that I will see them walk down the aisle because there was a time that nobody knew if I would make it to the next day. I'm excited to be able to use this story to minister to other young girls that could be in a position of struggle, that maybe it will give them a glimpse of hope that they also have. No matter how overwhelming those feelings or those urges are, they are not worth the destruction and the devastation that cause. I truly believe the verse that it talks about in Jeremiah where he says he ordained us in our mother's womb before we were ever even a thought here on earth. He called us by name for a purpose, for a cause, for something bigger and greater than we could ever imagine. And the struggles that you're dealing with today pale in comparison to the calling that he has on your life. It's hard to see it when you're in the middle of it, but looking back, I see all of those different pieces that God lined up in my life to make it what it is today.